Hi, this is Loretta Swit, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson, welcoming you back to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television that is pleased to bring you part two of our conversation with Jeffrey Mark, author of Ella, a biography of the legendary Ella Fitzgerald Centennial Birthday Edition, a comprehensive biography and discography of the First Lady of Song. In her lifetime, Ella Fitzgerald overcame poverty, homelessness, racial prejudice, sexual and physical abuse, and a slew of health issues to enjoy an astonishing music career that spanned seven decades, rivaling and in many ways surpassing those of Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, and Michael Jackson. Ella, a biography of the legendary Ella Fitzgerald, is available in hardcover at Amazon.com and wherever books are sold online. Jeffrey Mark is also the host of Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella, a weekly podcast that celebrates the music of the First Lady of Song. Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella is available wherever you find podcasts. Okay, I want to talk about some of her uh, television appearances in just a second, but I want to go back to something that you said a few minutes ago about, I mean, one of the reasons why Ella is still revered all over the world is because she toured the world and she connected with audiences of all cultures, all creeds, all races. I mean, she loved everybody. And she knew that she was a role model to African Americans in particular because she was rising and became a star in the midst of segregation and the civil rights movement. One of the ironies, and it's I, I guess I don't know whether this, this is just the way it is or just part part of the entertainment industry that happens sometimes. Ella did not favor African American singers or white singers or white audiences or African American audiences ever Ella reached everybody. But some I understand some African American singers resented Ella because of her fame. So she had to deal with that. I don't blame them. I mean if you're a female African-American singer. Now, first of all, it is a shame that, that, that people even have to think this way. Yeah. Ella may be of her time, meaning the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. By the 1960s, things were easing up a little bit. And singers like Diana Ross and Diane Carroll weren't being compared only to other African-American singers. They just became singers. But before that... If you were Carmen McRae or Sarah Vaughn or even Billie Holiday, you weren't, or Lena Horne, you weren't being compared to Doris Day or Dinah Shore or Judy Garland. You were being compared to Ella. And like I said earlier in our broadcast, there was Ella and there was everybody else. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're one of those everybody else's, there's going to be some some feathers ruffled because... You don't get to be appreciated for your own talent. You get to be appreciated in how you relate to the great Ella Fitzgerald. So it's, it's a shame people's mindsets were like that. Because Billy and Sarah and Carmen and Lena and, and everybody else have their own sound. They have their own talent. Do I think Ella was the best of all of them? Yes. I, I think there is a, there is a mountaintop 
of female singers. Let's keep this to female, otherwise yeah. the, the, the field becomes too large. Mm-hmm. But we'll put Mr. Sinatra up there also. Yeah. Of, of Barbara Streisand and Judy Garland and uh, Beverly Sills and Ella Fitzgerald, who really, 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 really were the best at the kind of music they sang, maybe Ethel Merman on Broadway, they're the best. And it's an unfortunate thing people are going to be compared to them. Uh, At least today, when people are being compared, it's across the board racially, and it's across the board culturally. And you can say one is better than the other, but not because they're black or because they're not black. You're just comparing talent. Yeah. Uh, One thing that set Ella apart from pretty much any other female singer in her day, and I would say pretty much any other singer, period, with the possible exception of Sinatra, is that she was one of the few vocalists who could go from classic to contemporary, contemporary meaning even rock and roll, even pop songs, and still pull it off, still come across as cool. I mean, some people, there are, I mean, in fact, you have a few examples of this in, in your book, Jeffrey, about uh, some peers of Ella who tried to switch genres and they came across looking ridiculous. Ella never had that problem. Ella could sing everything. Well, Ella was very wise about music. That, that's, when you say someone's a genius, this is part of her genius. You know, if you go back to her, her foundation, where she started, literally, when, when Chick Webb hired her, he said, we're going to go to Yale on Thursday. If the Yale boys like her, everybody will like her. And she was always very aware that it was young people who gave her her start And she always wanted to make sure that she was never left behind. I said that a little earlier in the broadcast. Well, that included never being Mm old-fashioned. So all through the years, when she first started, the music she sang, big band and that kind of swing music, was top 40 music. It was pop music of the day. As things changed and moved into rock and roll, and folk music and rock music, Ella did not want to be left behind, and she didn't want her youthful listeners to be bored. Not that one can get bored by Gershwin, but unless one has heard Gershwin, Mm -hmm. it's a new thing. Mm -hmm. So she tried to include something contemporary, and uh, interestingly, she was the first person, the first singer, to realize that the Beatles weren't just some sort of terrible fad Mm -hmm. taking record sales away from other people. She said, no, this is something new and it's good. And she recorded a big band version, a big band arrangement of Can't Buy Me Love. Mm -hmm. And she hit the top 40 with it. She had a big hit with it. In fact, Ringo Starr said, that's my favorite version of Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah. So she realized, aha, I can do this if I do it in my own style and don't try to copy their style. Yeah, be authentic. Yeah, so she recorded through the years John Lennon songs, Paul McCartney songs, uh, Carol Bayer Sanger songs, wonderful Melissa Manchester songs. Uh, She she recorded an obscure 
Paul Williams song called Ordinary Fool. Mm -hmm. That's maybe the most brilliant torch song of the last part of the 20th century and rescued it from obscurity. And I sing it in my show now because Ellis sings it. And she sang it for the rest of her life. She, she kept adding things, uh, a medley of songs from the musical The Wiz, Sunshine of Your Love, rock and roll songs, rock songs, but she sang them, Hey Jude, she sang them in her style. They weren't necessarily all big hits, but if you went to see her, it added another layer, another piece of texture to the tapestry of what was an Ella Fitzgerald experience. And as the music kept changing, she kept changing. The only thing she didn't try to do was rap music. Yeah. She felt if she tried that, she'd almost be making a parody of it. So she never did that. But she would drop even pieces of, like, what's love got to do with it mm -hmm. into her scatting to keep herself contemporary. And she always, every year, played colleges and universities and young people's festivals. She was very much into young people. She knew what it was like to be a young person with no future and very few options. And she wanted to reach out to young people and tell them, no, you've got options. Look at me. Look what I've done. You can do it, too. Paul Williams is one of the many, 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 many Ella Fitzgerald collaborators that Jeffrey Mark talked to in his excellent book, Ella, a biography of the legendary Ella Fitzgerald Centennial Birthday Edition, which is available on hardcover through Amazon.com and wherever books are sold online. Jeffrey Mark is also the host of Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella, a weekly podcast that celebrates the music of the First Lady of Song. Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella is available wherever you find podcasts. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Okay, we before we started recording, I told you that I came of age late 60s, early 1970s. I happened to watch, my family happened to watch daytime television shows like Dinah and Mike Douglas. And, and for me, that was my introduction to Ella. And when she eventually started doing the Memorex commercials, I mean, to me, that she was part of that is how I came to know her, and as I got older, that's when I first discovered, and one of the joys of your C, of the CD you put together is you enable people like me who only knew older Ella, you give us a chance to hear Ella in her prime. And there is the converse of that, which is there are people who are familiar with her songbooks, or maybe Ella in Berlin, but don't realize that Ella had an album coming out every single year up mm -hmm. to 1990. Mm -hmm. uh, there is also this older Ella. It's a different voice, but she makes different choices. Because her voice changes, uh, she uses everything she's got to bring you a wonderful experience. So it's, it's educational both ways. For those who only knew the older Ella, here's what she sounded like in her prime and, and in her youth. For those who only know that stuff, well, here's what she did when she got older, and here's how she adapted. So it's an educational process back and forth. It's a very funny thing. Now, here I am. I've written what I think, and I hope those of you out there will also agree with me. A wonderful book and beautifully put together by Mies Hora at Ultimate Symbol. But I wasn't really aware of Ella until the 70s. Oh, I, I knew she was a singer 
and I'd heard, I think, Lady Be Good from the 1940s, and I'd heard her gospel album. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, what she actually did, what she was known for, didn't connect in my head when I was a kid. And there was going to be an episode of Dinah, exclamation point. That was Dinah's <laughs> afternoon syndicated talk show. And Dinah was doing a salute to first ladies. Mm -hmm. So she had Beverly Sills, first lady of opera, and she had Lucille Ball, first lady of television. That's why I was watching. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth Taylor, first lady of movies, and Ella Fitzgerald, first lady of songs. And Ella came out and sang, I'm beginning to see the light from Duke Ellington. And Ordinary Fool. And I turned to the friend I was sitting with, and I, I guess in, in, in order to be totally honest, uh, I wasn't completely sober in the moment. I was a young man back yeah. then. Uh, I don't do those things anymore, but back then I imbibed a little bit. Yeah. And I sat there and I said, she's not human. No one can do what she's doing because she was not singing the correct notes, and she wasn't singing in the meter of the song, yet every note she sang was perfect, and every meter she chose was the right choice. And I said, good heavens, I've got to find out more about this woman. That was in 1977, and I immediately started doing research. So my research has been a long time coming, up to including, you know, getting close to her office and her people and, and being a little part, a little part of uh, her later years career, it just blew me away. How can someone do what she did? I didn't understand. I knew what I was watching was genius and one of a kind. I didn't understand how she got there or where it came from. That's the germ of the book. And one of the cool things about uh, Jeffrey's book is. He gives you an idea of what he calls the three essential Ella-isms, or Ella-ments, so to speak, you know, that made Ella different than anybody else. And you kind of touched on that in, in talking about the episode of Dinah that she, that, that she watched her on in, in 1977 about how she would do things like she would break up a syllable that shouldn't be broken up, or she would play with tempo, technically not sing it correctly, but she would sing it her way and it would all sound seamless, and that's what made her an original. Yes. Those are technical things that she did. They can be, to some degree, copied. Mm -hmm. But knowing when to do it, mm -hmm. not just how, yeah. but when and when not to, when to sing it straight, when to bend it, when to change it up, and that she didn't do it the same way twice. So it wasn't like, this is how I sing. One of her favorite opening songs was Too Close for Comfort. Yeah. She did not ever sing it the same way twice. The arrangement was the same, but she sang it as she felt it in the moment. And she had the talent, and this is the genius, to know what to do, when to do it, and when not to. Because we can point to different singers' techniques. Some singers, Bobby Darren snapped his fingers. Mm -hmm. uh, Ethel Merman had that, ah, uh, thing in her voice. Yeah. yeah, you can copy them. You can say that's a hallmark of their singing. But the genius is to know how to use it. 
and uh, there's so many levels and layers to what Ella did. That's why she's so different from everybody else. There are lots of wonderful, wonderful singers out there, and I've gotten to know many of them personally who I, I think are, are great both in the jazz field and in the pop field and, you know, rock. Janis Joplin was mm-hmm. a genius. Mm-hmm. But Ella had so many layers to what she did, even in later years when her voice was more limited. That's why she stands alone. We're talking to Jeffrey Mark, author of Ella, a biography of the legendary Ella Fitzgerald. Ella, a biography of the legendary Ella Fitzgerald, is available in hardcover through Amazon.com and wherever books are sold online. Jeffrey Mark is also the host of Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella, a weekly podcast that celebrates the music of the First Lady of Song. Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella is available wherever you find podcasts. How did Ellis first start doing the commercials for Memorex? Well, like anything else, when you're doing anything commercial like that, a company contacts your agents or the people who represent you. Most big stars have somebody who, like, this is the person you call if you want to use Ella for something commercial. I have one, too. I mean, everybody who works in sure. show business has someone like yeah. this, should they want to use you. And it was a genius idea, and it's the truth, because they had three attorneys there for every commercial she did. The idea, for those of you out there who don't know what we're talking about, all through the 1970s into the 1980s, Memorex was a company, and still is, but back then their big deal was that they made cassette tapes. Mm -hmm. And that they were saying their cassette tapes captured sound and music so well that you can't tell if it's someone singing live or if it's Memorex playing their voice back. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they got a glass blower, and this is a scientific thing, that glass can be blown so that if a certain musical note is hit purely and clearly, very, very loud, (laughs) it will shatter the glass. So they would tell Ella what note, and they would make this glass to that note. And all of them, because nobody ever hears this part, it says the amplified voice of Ella Fitzgerald yeah. can shatter glass. And she'd hit the note live in front of the camera. The glass would be in front of the speaker and crack when she hit the note. Then they'd play the tape back, and again, the glass would crack. And at first it was just Ella... It was Ella and Count Basie, it was Ella and Chuck Mangione, it was Ella and Melissa Manchester, but the constant was that Ella could hit this note, and is it Ella or Memorex? And Ella would say, beats me, (laughs) and tell you how much money. So she was known, she said, there are people who didn't know that she sang, other than, ooh, ooh, there's the Memorex lady. That's right. She'd go to London. And the little Cockney children, oh, look, it's the Memorex lady. (laughs) Everywhere she went, even in Japan, she didn't understand, but she understood the word Memorex, Mm -hmm. and they'd point at her. Yeah. It opened her up to a whole new generation of people who maybe wouldn't have known who she was otherwise. You know, it's interesting, Jeffrey. Uh, She appeared on pretty much every major variety show of the 50s, 60s, going into the 70s. Uh, she appeared on The Tonight Show under, you know, uh, Johnny, under Jack Parr, under Steve Allen. I mean, she did a lot of television, yet she never was offered a show of her own. And I was just thinking about this before 
before I called you today, and you go into the reasons why she probably wasn't offered a show at the time, but my guess is even if she were offered her own show, I don't think she would have taken it because she was so much in demand on the road and she made a lot more money on the road. I I think a weekly television show would have slowed her down. Perhaps. Uh, Unfortunately, we have to go back to who our country was half a century ago. Mm -hmm. The only person, African-American, who even tried to have a variety show of his own was Nat King Cole. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1957. And Ella and everybody else in show business appeared on the show almost for free just to get this thing going. And they were able to maintain about a year but it was a huge flop, and a lot of stations around the country wouldn't carry it because there was a black man and a sexy black man singing romantic songs, and they weren't going to have it. But what is, I think, a bigger thing, yeah, the weekly show, probably not, because she was working so hard, but that Ella did television specials, four or five of them for the BBC, mm-hmm. She did them in Sweden. She did them in Germany. She did them in France. She did them. She did live concert television shows in the south of France, about a half a dozen of them. She did four or five of them in Japan. American network television, and I know I'm aging myself here because I'm even older than you are. Uh, <laughs> uh, NBC, ABC, CBS were the only networks we had up until cable. Mm-hmm never gave Ella Fitzgerald a television special. They would never allow a black female to have her own show. The first African-American to have his own variety show like that, after Nat Cole, was Flip Wilson. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ella did one special with uh, the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and that was syndicated, meaning it played in individual stations around the country Mm -hmm. at different times. Mm -hmm. She's this iconic number one Grammy-winning performer, and yet the different networks never thought she was important enough or could sell her enough to even give her a special, never mind her own series. She did end up doing two things for PBS in 1979. But everywhere else in the world, there were all these wonderful Ella Fitzgerald specials, and I'm grateful that I have copies of all of them so I can watch them. And uh, if you go on to uh, Amazon.com today, there are several European specials you can buy on DVD, which is just the way Ella would want it, that we can, in the 21st century, stick a disc in or stick a fire stick in or turn through the YouTube or through the Internet, and we can still watch Ella in concert today. Ella would just love that, that we can still be enjoying what she felt she was born to do. And we hope you're enjoying part two of our conversation with Jeffrey Mark, author of Ella, a biography of the legendary Ella Fitzgerald. We'll take a quick time out, then we'll talk some more about Ella Fitzgerald, including how she learned to be a star for the first time with the help of Marilyn Monroe after this quick time out here on TV Confidential. If your loved one has passed away due to COVID-19, pay close attention to this message. You could be entitled to a death benefit of over $300,000. The U.S. government has set up a fund to pay families relief if they've lost a loved one due to COVID-19. 
We know this is a hard time for you, and this fund has been set up by the federal government to help ease your pain. The compensation includes a death benefit and lost wages benefit. Time is limited, so we urge you to make a free phone call right now. There's no cost to you for this claim. All legal fees are only covered once you receive your money. So if you've lost a loved one due to COVID-19, call the legal helpline right now to find out if you qualify for a cash award. Here's our number. 800-915-8054. 800-915-8054. That's 800-915-8054. Paid for by the IPG Law Group. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.